such wise hear them read mark learn and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort that thy holy word may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which has given us in our savior jesus christ amen you said that that colic which is a colic for the second sunday in advent we talk about uh, inwardly digesting we had a lesson in ezekiel in morning prayer Yesterday, where God told Ezekiel to take the scroll and eat it, and we're going to come to a place in um, Revelation where John is told to take the scroll and eat it. So that's kind of the origin of that language of, of digesting the Word of God. So welcome to everyone. Rob, commission to see online. Um, are you down in Savannah, Michelle? Tucson. Anyway, good to have one. Hello, uh, Christine, Elizabeth, Rhonda, Mimi. I think we have a couple of people maybe by uh, phone. So anyway, we, we left off. We're working our way through Revelation. And we're, as we said up front, we aren't going to, um, we aren't going to storm through it. We're going to unpack the imagery, which means every verse may have a number of references to go look at. But the main thing I mentioned last week to introduce again this week is that um, Revelation is going to be playing within uh, uh, a tapestry of images, all of which are deeply rooted in the Old Testament, 
and and all of which or most of which are um, really connected to the temple and and the, the first thing we're going to get we're going to get worship in the temple we're going to see by the time we get chapters four and five you know the 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 temp, the, the fulfilled temple worship of the people of God so a lot of the images we're going to see are are images that pertain to what that's like so there is that last week we made it up through um, verse five we touched on um, the seven spirits uh, and how these relate to to the uh, the lamps we're going to see in a minute uh, we talked about Christ being the firstborn uh, of creation Colossians mentions that Psalm 89 mentions that uh, and we mentioned uh, a very important thing in verse 5 that Jesus is the ruler of the, over the kings of the earth that we say Jesus is Lord we don't mean he's the the guy that we Christians worship whereas everyone else has their own guy that Jesus is Lord of the world and um, he rules over it and part of the framework of revelations is to um, describe how how he does that and how his people participate in his rule because we're going to get to that that image uh, today so we'll, do, we'll start with that because it's, it's a significant image so we, we had we had began last I'll just read us to get us to the context but we won't talk about anything till I get to verse 6 so John has said grace and peace to you from him who was and is and is to come that's the greeting from the God of Mount Sinai from the seven spiritual before his throne we talked about that last week and from Jesus Christ the, the faithful witness we mentioned the witness uh, the word for witness in Greek is martyr uh, or from which we get our word martyr, and Jesus Christ, the faithful, uh, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to whom who loved us and washed us or us from our sins in his own blood. So we'll jump in today here, and he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Uh, to him be glory and dominion forever. Sometimes that's translated as priests or kings and priests, but the gist of it is the same. Um, so, what's this about? Did anyone look up the Old Testament verse I gave you? Okay, so if, 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 I, if I'm getting that people aren't actually going to look them up, I won't send them out. So I'm, this is a chastisement. If I, if I ask you, what verse did I send out that relates to this? I saw First Peter was somewhere in there. That was later. Okay, all right. So I, I see now that maybe the efforts of putting Bible verses out is not being repaid by looking up ahead of time. I got so it. I will fill. Now that you know. Which verse? Exodus 19. Yes. Exodus 19. 19. 5 and 6. Okay. So let's go to turn your Bibles to Exodus 19. 
5 and 6. So uh, for those, that, you know, the first book is Genesis, the second is Exodus, that's where you get there. That'd be 5 chapters. Yeah. Yeah, but what I'm saying, Angel, is what John is saying in Revelation chapter 1 is referring to a lot of Old Testament stuff. So now we're going back to Exodus to see where John gets. In other words, John did not just make up that I will make you a kingdom of priests or make you kings and priests. He's drawing on the Old Testament teaching that's now being fulfilled. Um, and so if we, if we go to um, Exodus 19, Moses goes up to the mountain in verse 3. Moses went up to the mountain, and the Lord God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you, indeed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we get back to Revelation chapter 1. And he says, Jesus Christ, the faith and witness, who has freed us from our sins and has made us kings and priests or a kingdom of priests unto our God and our Father. What John is saying is that in Christ, God has fulfilled the promise of the Exodus. He's brought it to completion of what he's done in Christ. So that what Christ has done is not separate from that old covenant stuff. Look consternated. So, so, again, this is not a concept that John is making up. So let's talk about this for a minute. What does it mean to um, be kings? It means to rule. So, therefore, if Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth, and we're kings reigning with him, how do we do that? Huh? The other ideas. How do we? How do we? How do we um, exercise our power of rule? The greatest of these is a servant, but you want to serve your role as a king and queen in the kingdom. Earth. So, so there, there's a lot of images that come out of uh, a lot of, of applications of the word king. Let's first of all understand that even in Exodus, it's not a new concept. Because um, back in, in Genesis um, chapter 1, when God uh, uh, made Adam, what did he give him over the earth? Dominion. You got dominion of the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So it was it was 
Adam's original vocation to rule. And um, what happened to that vocation? Well, but let's, before he got kicked out, he, he lost it before he got kicked out. What, what, how, did he, how did he lose his rule? So let, let's unpack the nature of his disobedience. Um, how would you characterize the serpent? Would you characterize the serpent as part of creation? Okay. So Adam is king. He's ruling over the creation. Dominion over fish of the air. And, and the have a created thing slithers into the garden and says, hey, I want you to do what God says not to do. And rather than in God's name, exercising dominion, getting an ax and cutting off his head and telling him to get out of the garden, he heeds the voice. Eve heeds the voice of the serpent. Adam heeds the voice, heeds the voice of Eve. And rather than ruling over the creation, they obey, they, they become subject to it. They do what, they become subject to create a created thing. And, and that's the origin of human slavery. Um, later on, we'll, we'll get this, in, especially when we get to the, uh, well, next verse we'll get to it. So just hold it in mind, we'll turn there when we get there. But um, in Daniel, when, um, we get the Son of Man exalted to take dominion. We'll, we'll look at that in verse 7 in a minute. I gave it last week, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, they bring him before, and he receives uh, a kingdom and dominion and glory that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The Son of Man being is a restoration to the dominion that Adam lost through sin. So here's Christ, the new Adam, by his faithful life and death, all these things you're talking about, the faithful witness, restoring, recapturing, regaining the dominion that humanity lost by being subject to creation. And so um, when, when we are make, be made kings, we're being restored to our dominion we once had. And there's a lot of dimensions of that. Um, one of the dimensions is brought out in Lent by saying no to created things that have the, the tendency to enslave us or exercising our power. We can say no to what's not of God in order to say yes to what is of God. We can begin to take dominion over the creation again. And to the extent that we as Christians um, are subject to some created thing, or some created person, that we must do what they tell us to do, follow some compulsive in, in, impulse. We've not yet, we're not yet exercising fully our dominion. And this is part of the, the goal of the spiritual life and the disciplines of the spiritual life, is to not become subject to things again like Adam and listen to the serpent. Not become subject to what we do, we listen to our appetites and the call of something that's not honoring to God, we take dominion. That's one dimension of, uh, of, of dominion. Um, there's another dimension in terms of our own care for the creation. Uh, sometimes dominion is thought of as sort of 
just exercising power over, but clearly there's a sense of stewardship of creation. Adam was to tend the garden and make it fruitful. And so sometimes, you know, that that has a um, that means we have a vocation in regard to the creation to treat it well. And uh, we haven't always done that, especially in the modern world. Um, the third dimension of this, which we brought out in Revelation very powerfully, is um, that we rule with Christ through our prayer. And we're going to get there in chapters 4 and 5 when we see um, the 24 elders, the 24 elders of Revelation 4 and 5, they're sitting on thrones. What kind of people sit on thrones? Kings. And they're offering in, and they're wearing crowns, so kings wear crowns, and they're offering incense. What kind of people offer incense to God? Priests. Priests. So this image here, kings and priests, is just brought out in Revelation 4 and 5 in the symbolic number of the 24 elders. The, we'll get to it when it's, it symbolizes the fullness of the church. So when we gather together, especially as a body, especially Eucharistically, to gather and um, offer prayers, this is our participation in the rule of Christ. And what's made clear in Revelation is that the judgments, the righteous judgments of God in Revelation come in response to the prayers of his people. And this um, makes more sense of the Psalms, especially, which I've always understood to be the prayers of the people of God, and, you, and why you're always finding in the Psalms that the psalmist is, is praying for justice. He's grieved at the wicked. He sees the ungodly in prosperity. He's asking God, how long? So you judge righteously. And what you get in Revelation is continuous refrain that God, when God's judgments come, what do you hear? That true and righteous are thy judgments. And so we participate by our prayer. We're told not to enact judgment on our own. Why? Huh? But there's another reason. Why, why else are we told not to judge? Huh? Lest we be judged. Lest we be judged. Well, why would we be judged if we judge? You might. You might be misjudged. Yes. yes. So we're told not to judge because whereas Revelation will say, "True and righteous are your judgments," when we judge, it's like, you know, kind of okay are our judgments mixed in with lots of selfish motives. So this is why the framework of the Christian life is to commit our prayers to God, to work on maintaining our own innocence of life, not responding to evil with evil, so that when we come to God with our prayers and in innocence, God will hear our prayers and judge for us. And I want to say that this is precisely the modality of revelation, that as I'm saying to you, or I'm suggesting to you, that Revelation is in its primary application the, the articulation of God's judgment on Jerusalem, his unfaithful people. This judgment is coming in response to the righteous life and death 
of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, and, and as St. Peter says, that Jesus committed himself to him who judges righteously. And the resurrection is the vindication of the righteous Jesus. And then Jesus now, having fulfilled the covenant, has the right to judge. And he enacts judgment, righteous judgment, on those who, who wrongly rejected him. That's a righteous judgment. So we, in Christ, must aim to live righteous lives and commit ourselves to him who judges righteously, not responding to evil with evil, responding to evil with the good. And as we live in Christ in this way and offer our prayers to God, God hears and his good time will vindicate us, will judge in our favor. That's the framework of the New Testament and the framework of Revelation. Could you give a shell the definition of dominion? Yeah, it's a good question. Elena, if somebody didn't hear online, Elena asked about the, the concept of dominion. And, and we want to, uh, this, this kingship that we're restored to, we definitely want to read that in light of Adam, who was told, take dominion and lost it. So, um, when, when God told um, Adam to take dominion, he didn't mean to rape and pillage the earth. He meant that he had rightful authority over it, and he was to care for it as the you know, regent or steward of God. That's what he, and, and so um, he had rightful authority over animals, and he could, he, could, he could, they were subject to him. But I think the key thing here that, we're, that, that gets lost in, say, the modern or any human articulation of this is that we can't separate dominion from the ability of a more powerful person to exert their power on another to the detriment of the subjugated. Whereas we say the Lord is king, the earth may be glad thereof, and because he is righteous and good, he exercises authority, but he doesn't do it at the expense of people. He, he rules for the good. And that's what his dominion over everything works for. Human sin mars that good and perverts that good from its original thing, including the perversion that turns righteous rule into, you know, what we're seeing, for example, in Ukraine right now, where someone just says, I have enough power, I can just come in and crush you. I don't want to get any historical arguments about that, but I just want to say that's a human history. Where, where the, the, the more powerful able to subjugate the less powerful. And to some degree, this whole faulty framework is um, part of the misunderstanding of, of even authority in the church. And where, um, for example, even we talk about things like the, the biblical and historical and Catholic and apostolic practice that 
that the apostolic ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons is male and not female because Christ is male. Extracted from the scriptures, placed in a 20th century context where there's a battle for equality, it becomes, oh, you don't care about women or you don't, and that's not anything about what it is. The fact is that, that, that it is always a perversion of what we might call male headship when they exercise that to the detriment of, of, of the woman with whom they were, they were made one, you know, who, who, with whom they are inextricably tied from the Genesis narrative. And it's always a perversion of God's intent. It's always to rule for the benefit. And it is really instructive if you really want to read some history and not just, you know, and, and I want to, before I say what I'm going to say, I want to make a parenthetical statement that some of the sort of feminist objections to what they saw in the church were valid. Sometimes there was misogyny. Sometimes there were men not exercising righteous dominion. But in general, in the history of the church, when, when the church began to spread into the Roman world, one of the main results of that was the raising of the status of women everywhere. Um, because, because it had, a, it, it, and not least of which because of, of you, you have this faith in which the Blessed Virgin is the chief saint who, who is exalted for her yes to God, which answers the, the disobedience of Eve. So dominion is the righteous dominion of God which has a rightful authority, but it's never arbitrary, capricious authority, which I exercise because you made me mad and I'm stronger and I can make you do what I want. It's the, it's the rightful authority to exercise, you know, the right to rule in a place. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, we see this in very, ordinary examples. You know, we drive around, a police officer has the rightful authority to enforce the law and tell you, you're going too fast, you're going to get a ticket. He doesn't have the authority to, to because he has a gun, and, you know, to, 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 to find someone who's not doing anything and use that authority, and I don't want to get any police debates, but these are real issues. But these are human issues. They're not, there's always a tendency when you're in authority to to use it to the detriment of those who are, who are but sort of the righteous dominion of Adam was in the image of God to rule as God rules, to love the animals, but yes, but there's, but, but, and to, and to care for and steward. And so we take dominion, we're not, you know, sometimes that was in a, in a post-industrial revolution context taken to mean we start just using anything any way we want to use it. Yeah, I mean, Elena raises the issue in the Old Testament where the Jewish people demanded a king because they didn't like um, the, the, the way some of the judges were ruling. And they were really, um, they didn't trust. They wanted an army to, to protect them. And it was a lack of faith. And partly here, it's even in our world, because this is, is the framework of faith that's being highlighted here in Revelation is that we, 
we're asked to trust that Jesus really and truly is in control. And you say, well, wow, look at what's going on overseas. Look at the persecution. How can Jesus be in control? But I want to offer in, in this regard that not, not that there are easy answers to those questions, but that those questions don't aren't strange to the biblical claim because we're asked to believe that on Good Friday, when the very Son of God is being beaten, abused, and murdered, that God remains in control. That God works through, and, and God's saving the world through suffering. And we don't like that because we don't like the same world of the cross. We want to skip Lent and Good Friday and Holy Week and Good Friday, get right to Easter. But we, don't, we might not like the way God is doing it, but it's not inconsistent with the biblical story. <laughs> and you say, well, I'll suffer. Yeah. So 12 apostles, 11 were brutally martyred. The others spent most of his life suffering. But, so the idea that there's suffering in the world in our lives is not inconsistent with this narrative. What we're asked to believe is that Jesus remains in control and rules through that, in the midst of it. He uses the evil for the good. They, they tried to kill the Son of God and take the world over, and he used that as a means to save the world and become king. Joseph said to his brothers, when he finally revealed himself, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And the more our, it takes time in our lives, a life of prayer and faith, to begin to understand God's sovereign work in our lives and to see our lives are conforming to this narrative. It doesn't mean that things we don't want to happen won't happen. It means God will be in control even of that. So this dominion we exercise, we exercise in prayer, uh, and this is the kind, but Jesus is, is in control. And we rule then a little bit, that's why the model of him in his, in his life and ministry by doing what is right, by exercising our gifts, by doing good works, and by praying, interceding for the world, and um, that's, that's rule. Now, the priesthood part, priests have a dual role. They um, represent the people to God and God to the people. So, um, in in the Torah, the priest offered the sacrifice, but he's also supposed to teach people the law. So when we're priests, we can bring our prayer. We, each member of the body of Christ, individually and especially corporately as a church, we bring our prayers to God. We, we intercede for the world, all the people we pray for and things we pray for. And then when we leave the altar, we are witnesses for Christ in the world. And that's kind of our intercession. Here we are showing the world what God is like. And, and that's our role. We're kings and priests. We're ruling with God and by, by taking dominion over our lives and desires and all that through the disciplines of prayer, by taking care of the things within, in benevolent stewardship that God has committed to us, by interceding and praying for, for Christ to come and waiting for him to vindicate us. 
and we, we were priests because we intercede with the with God for the world and we represent God to the world. So we're kings and priests, and that fulfills because we become this in Christ, we're baptized into Christ. In Christ, this fulfillment has come. Why is this? Because we have received something that only in the Old Testament kings and priests received, which is what? Huh? A gift. What made a king a king and a priest a priest? Anointing. The Holy Spirit. That's what made a king a king, a, a priest. You, you, it was, somebody had to come and pour oil. The sign was there over the head of the priest. That was the consecration of priests. When you made a king, um, prophet had to come for oil, anoint the king with the spirit. So Pentecost, where the spirit is poured out on all of the people of God, now all of the people of God come to share in that rule and intercession. And even the prophetic work is the third characteristic of people who are uh, the Old Testament of the spirit of prophets. And so we, we, we have a prophetic role, you know, to, to, to um, discern the will of God and, and, and have that role. So when we're made kings and priests, that's what this is talking about, that we're, we're the whole people of God now takes on this vocation. In Christ but as members of his body with real individual ministries. And this is um, that verse men from First uh, Peter 2. And in here, Peter picks up both the image of the temple and the priesthood. I'll read this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Um, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. And that's the temple imagery. So in the Old Testament, when they built the temple, they carved stones. Built the temple. So we now, we Saying are living stones, he's using the image being being built together, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's your prayer, um, um, and and that's your service. Your life of service and obedience in the world is a sacrifice offered to God, which is. As, as Romans 12 says, wholly acceptable to God. Um, let, me, let me get that imagery, let me get that quote just right. So I, in, Re, in Revelation 12, for example, it says, um, I beseech you, Revelation 12, verse 1. Uh, Romans 12, verse 1, thank you. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So in Christ, with the gift of the Spirit, as we live holy lives, 
That's a sacrifice. As we live other than the world in a different way, that's the sacrifice. That's the spiritual. The spiritual household, back to 1 Peter 2, 5, you're built to the spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, royal priesthood, ruling priesthood, his own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's um, going back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. That's what's caught up in that imagery. I've made, he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. This is why I'm telling you, you got to be patient with Revelation. One verse is easily a half hour. Not every verse is a half hour, but that's an important concept. Adam's dominion, to the loss and the fall, to the, to the promise to Israel and the provisional restoration through the priesthood of, of, of rule and dominion, which was failed in the old, which failed in the old covenant, to the incarnation of our Lord who restores the dominion and then who shares it with us again, restores us to that space of, of union with God and dominion through the gift of the Spirit, our kings and priests. Okay. So let's do one, let's, let's move on to another verse now. Um, and this, this is something um, that is... Uh, this verse and this concept, it may take you a little while to get your head around, but it's really, really important. Um, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. Now, again, if you just take um, coming with clouds... Don't look at the Bible at all and just come with clouds. Think, okay, he's going to, you know, where is he? And we're looking for um, Jesus to actually descend with his feet on a cumulus nimbus cloud. Now, maybe at the very end of time, that will be a literal image of how he appears. But that's to, but to, to take that, that image over literally. Is, is to ignore what the Bible says about that image. And so let's talk about some of the passages um, that, uh, that, are, that relate to this. And so now uh, turn, you turn to, or just listen to me if you don't want to turn there. This is Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It is our uh, morning prayer lesson for Ascension Day. Because Jesus rose from the dead, and then how many days later did he ascend? How many? How many days after? Forty. Forty. Forty days after the, res of the after the resurrection, that's ascension day. Jesus ascended, and when he ascends, um, when he ascends, he's returning to the Father, and the proper image of the ascension is coronation. 
the Son of God who shared the glory of God from the beginning, shares the glory of God from the beginning, um, surrendered that outward glory to become man and live and to restore mankind to communion with God by his faithful life and death, fulfilling the covenant that God made with Israel to restore God and man. Then he rose from the dead and bore witness to his disciples. And then he returned to the Father, and that is the coronation scene. And that's what you get if you pay attention to Daniel uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So let me read, let's read that if you can turn there or just listen. Daniel, incidentally, um, to little, just a little bit of introduction to Daniel. Uh, Daniel is a prophet who... Um, is prophesying during the Babylonian captivity. Israel's in exile in Babylon. Um, temples destroyed in the Old Testament. And he has a series of visions. And in the series of visions, he sees successive kingdoms um, represented by beasts. And if we pay attention to those, there's lots of scholarly uh, good work and heretical work and strange work, but if we really pay attention to it, it, it tracks Daniel's vision from the Babylonian kingdom in which Israel went into exile to the Medo-Persian kingdom which conquered the Babylonian kingdom and allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple, Cyrus the Persian, to the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the Greek kingdom, to the Roman kingdom. And the Roman kingdom in Daniel is the fourth beast. In Daniel, during the reign of the fourth beast, this happens, what we're about to read. During the reign of the fourth beast, the, the Roman kingdom, Daniel has this vision. And, he, and he, was, he says this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, this is an image of Jesus. He always says in the New Testament, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man, so this is very important for this understanding of this passage, because we hear it. Read it as Son of Adam. So he is the descendant of Adam. That's what Adam would have meant. And all that we're going to get in this passage is playing back into that Genesis imagery again, because the four kingdoms, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman, in Daniel are characterized as beasts. In the original human vocation, man was to take dominion in the image of God. Having sinned and rebelled and forfeited his dominion, his rule became beastly. Characterized by these animals that characterize earthly kingdoms and still do characterize earthly kingdoms. So what we get here when we say one like the Son of Man is here's the genuinely human one. The beastly rule of fallen humanity is subhuman. 
It's not what humans are meant to be. And this is something we should understand when um, even we talk about in the New Testament, you know, Jesus being God and man, we say we typically think of humanity in terms of weakness and sin and rebellion. But that's wrong. God did not create humanity to be weak and sinful and rebellious. He created humanity's image. And, and every the sin brought in a loss of genuine humanity and made humanity subhuman and beastly, subject to just natural desire, biting, scratching, clawing, the, the power struggle that is the fallen world. Now, one like the Son of Man, we can read the truly human one. The one who has come, the one who has become man and showed us how to live and rule and take dominion, is now coming back to claim his throne. He's not a beast. He's one like the Son of Man. He's the true Adam. So he's watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the key thing I want you to understand about this verse. Because in Revelation, behold, he is coming with clouds. And so here he's coming with clouds. But when he's coming with clouds here, he's not coming to earth. He's coming to the Father. And he came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. Now, it just should be evident to all that the ancient of days here is God the Father. And the cloud, incidentally, is, is in, throughout the Old Testament an image of the Spirit. The cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. The glory cloud of the temple. So being born up in a cloud, the Spirit, and we've already seen the activity of the Spirit so far in Lent where Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descended upon him, and then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit leads him to fulfill the human vocation in all of its dimensions, and now he is born by the Spirit to the Father to be restored to his rightful dominion. So the cloud, when you think cloud, think Spirit. So he's coming with the cloud. He came to the Ancient of Days, they brought him, the Son of Man, near before him, the Ancient of Days. Then to him was given glory, or dominion, glory, and a kingdom, where all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So in contrast with those four beastly kingdoms that Daniel sees, all of which seem ravenous and powerful, but each of which falls. Here is the one established during the kingdom of the fourth beast of Rome that's going to live forever. That's the kingdom we're a part of through baptism. That's the kingdom we enter into in the Eucharist and, and, and rule with in the kingdom of God. And it doesn't really matter who's ruling in the world. Whoever it is, they're going to follow the pattern of those beasts. And they're going to be judged. As be for, for for their beastly behavior, but this is the kingdom that that, that will not pass away, an eternal kingdom, and that's why in that kingdom we know that when we're in that kingdom, 
Not even death can remove us from that kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. It doesn't have any end to it. And that's why the framework of the spiritual life then is to maintain our communion with God in Christ through the Spirit, to live faithfully so as to hold on to this. And it's why temptation then, world, flesh, devil, are all those things that threaten to pull us away from that union communion, pull us away from that eternal status into something temporal by which we lose it. And that's what Jesus faces in the wilderness, to turn stone into bread, you know, act outside of, 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 of God's will, jump off the temple, perform a cheap miracle and get a lot of people to follow you, um, all that, make a big moral compromise and, and achieve power. And Jesus says, no, he holds on to this, and as a result, he is now inherits the throne. And we, in him, following his pattern of obedience and resisting those temptations, we hold on to our status as well, and our trajectory will follow his into our own resurrection. So part of what I want to emphasize here is when Jesus is coming with the clouds, um, that um, he is, uh, it's an image that's saying that he is the one Daniel spoke of. He is the one who's received this kingdom that um, is not passing away. And that's a tremendous statement towards the Old Testament. Everyone knew the Son of Man to be the divine figure who, who, who was you know, truly God and divine. And so that's that's so when it says when when verse seven of Revelation says that, it means us to relate Jesus. To, to the man Daniel's talking about to understand what he's done in terms of Daniel's restoration of the kingdom to the Son of Man. Now, one other verse there that we should pick up on is um, Um, every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. This also is a prophecy from uh, the book of Zechariah. Um, and so all of these verses, when you go look at their, at their uh, this is why Revelation is notoriously rich and complex book, we could actually now leave Revelation and do a, a, a whole session on, Jero, on Zechariah. Um, but um, I want to find my verse here. Zechariah 12.10. So um, here's Zechariah 12.10. Let me read this for you. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. 
pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So we, there's a whole lot of unpacking of that as a separate Bible study. I only want to highlight for you that when John says, uh, every eye will see him and they'll look on him when they pierce, he's referring to Zechariah 12.10. And the meaning of that verse, therefore, must be drawn out in terms of what Zechariah is saying. And in terms of... Um, The imminent thing here is he whom they pierced, our Lord, sentenced to death, will come in judgment on Jerusalem, and they will look on him whom they pierced as they're being judged. Now, Zechariah has a horizon of redemption, and of course, um, the, the, the remnant of Israel, the church, is going to be saved from that judgment. When they repent, they look and they realize, oh, and that's sort of our, the, the, that's our essential um, spirit of Good Friday liturgy. We look on him whom we pierce. And part of the, 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 the reality of our repentance is to realize that That the crucifixion, while it has an historical place in an historical people, yet it symbolizes humanity's rebellion against God. And we always find ourselves in the crowd, and that's why we do the passion in parts. But we realize our rebellion that by our own, by our own sins, we say, "Crucify him again." We also like the crowd. Are all happy when it's good. They start to complain when it's not so good later in the week. And we all have these conundrums. We want to, you know, like pilot and like leadership of trying to please everybody. So all humanity is exposed in that narrative. When we look on him and we pierce, and the looking is either that eventually those who refuse to repent will look on him as their judge. Those who do will look on him and be saved by him at his coming because they've, they've turned from sin. All the tribes of the earth will mourn can also mean, more particularly in terms of Zechariah, all the tribes of the land shall mourn. So the imminent uh, thing is Israel. Now, again, the interpretation I'm offering does not preclude on actually just the very framework of the Bible assumes something like what happened in Jerusalem in the first century on a global scale when he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. Thoughts or questions about any of that? Yeah. 
lot. Like, uh, how do you know someone's changed from beast back to human? Well, I think we're in the process of being changed from beast back to human. And that's uh, where where um, we talk about in our colleague uh, uh, I think last Sunday, um, the flesh being subdued to the spirit. As our disordered nature through repentance and faith is reordered, we actually become more human. We become human when we acknowledge, yeah, I haven't really done what I should be doing. Accept the grace of forgiveness. And we go out as new creatures to love the way we're supposed to love. We become really human. And we ignore that, deny that we're wrong, defend ourselves, take it. And then what happens is we begin to project onto others our own anger. That's, that's the beastly thing. And we talk about um, Jesus as the only Savior. You know, people talk about those many religions. Because only what he did can do what we need done. Only God himself taking on the disordered human condition. Only God himself fulfilling the covenant, conquering sin, and giving us the spirit can enable us to actually do what needs to be done. Other frameworks can aspire to it, but they can't get it done. Only in only in this way can it happen. Moving on then to um, to verse eight. Says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and is to come. Again, this name of God then harkens back to Exodus um, chapter 3, where God reveals himself to Moses as that implies I was, I am, you know, I am, I was, I will be. As it was in the beginning, as now, and ever shall be, as we say. Um, it also, uh, and Alpha and Omega um, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So for us, it would be like the A and the Z. Um, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. So again, even this very wording, it's not being made up by John. It's just taken right out of the Old Testament from Isaiah. We also, verse 48, 12. And this also is, it's not just a theoretical construct about God's timelessness. It's also the nature of time. If you think about even our worship, where does our worship begin? It begins in Christ on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, where we gather to meet Christ and receive him and begin our time in Christ. And we live through the week. And then we come back on the eighth day, which is another first, but the eighth day is completion. 
to, to come to Christ. And so the, the, the Lord's day and the day of the Lord sort of correspond and overlap. He's the beginning and the ending. We begin in him, we're going to come back to him. We find life in him, and at the end, we'll find the completion of our life in him. So it's an experiential reality as well. And that's how our, our sense of time is, from first day to eighth day, which is in that which, which begins. And this is how we live in the time of the new creation. And this is why the whole idea of the life of prayer is so central, that we begin our time in Christ. We're not, we're not working six days trying to get a weekend break. We're beginning in Christ, uh, who is risen, receiving life in him. And we go out as witnesses to live the week in the time of the new creation looking for the completion of time in him when he comes at the end. That's a Christian orientation of time. And that's what the week and also the year does. We begin our time beginning the narrative in Advent, looking for him to come, going through the whole life up to Pentecost. We remember the gift of the Spirit, living through you know, the, 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 the summer, coming back to the fall, where we expect him to come and complete. And, and Advent always has that dual horizon of expecting his first coming, expecting his second coming. Because <clears throat> he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And our time will be finds to Questions about that or thoughts or reflections? So, I just want to remind you, I told you to be patient. I think, you know, the first chapter is rich, but that's three verses, and there's that much in three verses. That's the point. Now, if you really get revelation, unless you really unpack it and situate it squarely in the narrative of the Bible. So, pick up at verse 9 next week. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make this face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forevermore. Thanks for coming and joining us online. Mimi, Rhonda, Christine, Rob, Ed, Elizabeth. I think Michelle is there. We don't see her. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you. Bye.